Well, tonight we turn to the book of 2 Kings once again, 2 Kings chapter 3. We'll be looking at the first 15 verses. I have to say, I'm reminded as I preach through these historical books of the Old Testament what joy and fun it is. Uh, you know, it's, it's something I teach every once in a while. I go overseas and teach at seminary in Riga, Latvia, uh, New Testament history and Old Testament history. I enjoy both, but in some ways I enjoy the Old Testament history so much because I love stories. And these are fascinating stories, but they're true stories. And they're about God's work amongst his people before Jesus came. I have to say, when we think about stories and what we think is important to us, I have to remember that according to political junkies, now known as the news, what goes on in D.C. or possibly state capitals seems to be all that matters. However, if you're a sports junkie, perhaps you think that what happens on fields, courts, stadiums, or gyms, or maybe even swimming pools, is the only thing that matters. And perhaps you have a preference of something that you like more than anything else, and you think maybe that life revolves around those activities. What's the most important thing to the Lord? The most important thing to the Lord in the lives of the kings of Israel and Judah is their religious policies, because they determine the leadership of the king and the moral state of the kingdom. Let's read what happens under the leadership of Jehoram in Israel in chapter 3. In the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, Jehoram the son of Ahab became king over Israel and Samaria, and he reigned 12 years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, though not like his father and mother, for he put away the pillar of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he clung to the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He did not depart from it. Now Misha, king of Moab, was a sheep breeder, and he had to deliver to the king of Israel 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams. But when Ahab died, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. So King Jehoram marched out of Samaria at that time and mustered all Israel. And he went and sent word to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. The king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to battle against Moab? And he said, I will go. I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. Then he said, by which way shall we march? Jehoram answered, by the way of the wilderness of Edom. So the king of Israel went with the king of Judah and the king of Edom, and when they had made a circuitous march of seven days, there was no water for the army or for the animals that followed them. Then the king of Israel said, Alas, the Lord has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. And Jehoshaphat said, Is there no prophet of the Lord here through whom we may inquire of the Lord? Then one of the king of Israel's servants answered, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, is here, who poured water on the hands of Elijah. And Jehoshaphat said, The word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. And Elisha said to the king of Israel, What have I to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father and to the prophets of your mother. But the king of Israel said to him, No, it is the Lord who has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. And Elisha said, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, were it not that I have regard for Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, 
I would neither look at you nor see you. But now, bring me a musician, and when the musician played, the hand of the Lord came upon him. Now, I know we're stopping in the middle of the story, but we're going to stop here and ask the Lord to bless our time together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how all of your word is effective. It does not come back void. Lord, use this for your purpose in our lives, all the lives of those who might hear this message. We pray that the words spoken here might be consistent with your own. Give us ears to hear them and hearts to understand them. And Lord, if they are not consistent with your own, let them pass away, never to be heard from again. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I think I have found in my daily prayer life a new respect for chaplains in the ranks. You know my family's history if you've been here very long. You know that my son is now in basic training in the Army, and I think of what value it would be if he were to utilize the help of chaplains in the ranks. What about chaplains in the days of the kings of Israel? Were they there, and what did they do? Now, one of the interesting and curious things about this story is Elisha was found amongst the troops. Now, it's interesting, as one commentary writer, Mr. Davis, tells me as I read his book, God does not satisfy our curiosity by things that don't seem to matter according to God's purposes. God doesn't tell us why Elisha was amongst the troops. We don't know why he was there or if it was common for a prophet to be there or anything like that. But in this consequence of events, then here it is. He is right there amongst them. This powerful prophet of God has just begun his ministry. We never know why or how he has come to be there, but it's a reminder that God is always prepared to teach and address his people, even if they are not trusting in him. And in this passage, I think we're well served to be reminded of the life of Jehoram. Jehoram, of course, is the son of Ahab and Jezebel. His brother Ahaziah reigned before him. Ahaziah had no children, so Jehoram became king. And we're going to find in him that he was not as bad as his parents. We're also going to find that at one point in the story here, he had a sudden belief in the Lord's sovereignty. And finally, we're going to find that he had no standing before God's word. Well, first of all, this little introduction of the kingdom of Israel under Jehoram. This happens when a new king becomes king. This is the, the format of these chronicles of the kings uh, of Israel and Judah. And so the first three verses give us a summary or a summation of what God thought of Jehoram. Again, let's be reminded by these things. He's the son of Ahab. He becomes a king over Israel and Samaria. He reigns 12 years. Verse 2 tells us, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. This is the foundation of this uh, repetitive way of describing these kings. Either they did good in the sight of the Lord, or they did evil in the sight of the Lord. But the interesting thing about Jehoram is it gives a little nuance here. It says, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, just not like his father and mother. Now it's interesting. On the one hand, it says... He did evil. We're reminded this was not a good king. In fact, we're reminded after uh, King Solomon 
There's not a single good king of the northern kingdom of Israel. There's not anyone who is totally devoted to the Lord. And so he's an evil king, but this evil he did was not like his parents. And, of course, this is the other thing that's so interesting with Jehoram is both his father and his mother are mentioned. Now, you know, in most of these uh, genealogical traditions here, uh, they focus particularly on the father. And they would talk about either the good things or the bad things that the father had done and that he was the son of his father. But here it mentions his mother. And, of course, his mother was Jezebel, perhaps one of the most wicked women to ever grace the streets of Samaria. And it tells us that the reason why he was not as evil as his parents was this. He removed the pillar of Baal that his father had made. Evidently, Ahab being enticed by Jezebel, his wife, and being involved in Baal worship, not only uh, worshipped Baal and encouraged the country to do so, but right there in Samaria, he had put a standing stone or a pillar of stone to symbolize their worship and submission to the god Baal. Of course, Baal has a lot of connotations. It has to do with uh, fertilization. It also has to do with storms and rain and provisions. He is called Baal. This word in Hebrew is related to the word for Lord or Master. So it's a reminder that his father considered this false god to be the master of his land. And good, Jehoram removed it. So that makes Jehoram good, right? Well, no, because it says, just not like his father and mother. And then it says in verse 3, just not like in this way. He clung to the sin of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin, to sin, he did not depart from it. You see, he did what was evil in the Lord's sight. Even though the people in the kingdom of Israel may have said, oh, it's good, we're not worshiping Baal anymore. And of course, what do we do sometimes? We have a good politician because they're not doing X anymore, or they, they're not following this way anymore. But what if they're still doing what's wrong in God's sight? He says he clung to the sin of Jeroboam. What is that sin? That sin was golden calves placed in Bethel and Dan in two remote places, one on one end, one on the other end. And Jeroboam was concerned that the people of Israel, when they worshipped the true God, would all go down to Jerusalem. And because of their going down to Jerusalem, he would lose economically and he might lose some of the people uh, politically. And so because of his concern, he sought advice in the early days of the split kingdom of Israel from Judah. And he decided on that advice to build these golden calves and put them in place. And he said to Israel, these are the gods that rescued you from Egypt. And he instituted this worship of these golden calves. So here's Jehoram. On the one hand, he does something good. He removes the statue, the standing stone of Baal. But on the other hand, he resorts to the sin that has taken place for now 80 to 100 years. He begins once again to worship the golden calves, perhaps even ascribing to these golden calves the things that God, the true God of Israel, has done. What do we make of all this? Do we say it's okay to vote for somebody because it's the lesser of two evils? 
Do we just say, hold your nose and support this policy because it's at least halfway right? What do we do in these circumstances when we say, well, this isn't as bad as it could be? What does God want from us? The Lord wants from us total commitment. Take up your cross and follow me, says the Lord. In fact, in Revelation, John says to one church, I don't want you to be lukewarm because then I'll spit you out of my mouth. We're also reminded that the great sin here that's being committed is the sin of syncretism. That is adding the Lord to a pantheon of other gods, perhaps, or other philosophies or ideas. We might say today it's the Bible plus other things. The Bible is not enough, we say. You also need this or you need that. But what does the Lord require of us? Total commitment to him. In the analysis of these kings, he tells us Jehoram's not as bad as his parents. Nevertheless, he's evil in God's sight. And yet this evil guy, he still has a concept of truth about God. Here's the story. This is, first of all, Jehoram's war. He kind of inherited this situation. This war was such that it involved the rebelling Moabites. Now, if you know anything about Israel and Judah, you know that the Moabites were on the other side of the river. And so here they were uh, on, on the other side, a little bit down south. And for whatever reason, Ahab in the past had gained advantage over them and had required them to give 100,000 lambs and 100,000 rams wool to Israel. This was probably an annual tribute. So every year, they were required to give these 100,000 animals and 100,000 sets of supplies, wool, to Israel. Now you can imagine how this might affect their economy. You can imagine how this would be a political advantage to them. This took place under Ahab, his father. But when Ahab died... Then the king, Meshab of Moab, who, of course, because of this tribute, or maybe before the tribute, was a sheep breeder, how appropriate, he rebelled and he revolted when not Jehoram, but his brother Ahaziah became king. It was when Ahab died, after all. And so now Ahaziah has seen this revolt. Jehoram now has gained the kingdom at the death of his brother, and he decides we've got to do something about it. The economy might be tanking. Inflation might be rising. Things might be taking place that we hear about all the time in our own society. So when Ahaziah became king, Jehoram decided to go to war because this king had revolted against this big tribute of rams and wool. So what do you do when you go to war? recruit others for your cause. And so he has the idea of recruiting King Jehoshaphat of the southern kingdom of Judah. So here it is. Verse 7, he went and sent word to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, the king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to battle against Moab? And Jehoshaphat said, I will go. I am as you are, my people as you, your people, my forces as your forces. Now behind that background, if you know your history, you know that Jehoshaphat is a familiar ally to the family of Ahab. Ahab, after all, had recruited Jehoshaphat to another war 
In fact, it was the war in which Ahab was killed. And he was recruited in such a way that as they were about to go into war, Jehoshaphat said in that time with King Ahab, he said, isn't there a prophet we can inquire of? And, of course, Ahab uh, got all these prophets from Ramoth Gilead, all these false prophets, to say, oh, you're going to be successful in battle and all these other things. And Jehoshaphat said, but isn't there a prophet of the Lord that's here? And Micaiah, the prophet, began to prophesy. And he prophesied the death of King Ahab. And even though this prophecy came, in this context here, we understand that they went to battle anyway. Micaiah had said, Ahab, you're going to die if you go to battle. And Jehoshaphat and uh, King Ahab went to battle. Uh, they went to battle, and uh, King Ahab even said to Jehoshaphat, because of the prophecy, now because of what's taking place, I want you to wear your royal robes. I'm going to go in disguise in the battle. And so, of course, if you know what happened in that battle, then Jehoshaphat is going in his royal robes in the battle, and the enemy comes upon him, and he cries out to the Lord for deliverance, and they find out it's not the king of Israel, but the king of Judah that's in the chariot. And so the Lord, it says, protected him and helped him. But a random arrow came and flew through the air, hit Ahab in his chariot, and that became his death now. Ahab same time, Jehoshaphat is called out in 2 Chronicles chapter 19. He's called out for loving those who oppose God and being in concert with them. And the prophet said, God's wrath has come upon you because of that. Nevertheless, it said, there is good found in you. This is Jehoshaphat, a good king. So this is a familiar ally to the Ahab family. So despite that background with Ahab, despite the fact that there's another prophecy against Jehoshaphat for allying with Ahaziah, the other son of Ahab, here he comes to now this son, Jehoram. He's asked to go to battle, and he says the same thing he said to Ahab. I'm with you all the way. My people is your people. My horses as your horses, a familiar ally, a familiar commitment. So this is Jehoram's war. Jehoram's plan is this. Jehoshaphat says, what road shall we take? Now, this might sound like a silly thing to ask, but there were really only two logical ways for an army to enter Edom. Either they would go up north across the Jordan River north of the Dead Sea and come down from the north into Moab, from Ammon, over the, the Arnon River. Or they would go down south below the Dead Sea into the wilderness, across the mountains, into the southern part of Edom, through into Moab. And so he says, we're going to take the difficult road through Edom. In other words, we want to take them by surprise. In fact, if you know the situation, you know that perhaps they wanted to avoid the Syrians by going to the north. And perhaps you also might understand that Edom also was a vassal to, uh, to Judah and Israel. And so they would recruit them along the way and gain more followers. Uh, and so then they would have a better opportunity to defeat the Moabites. So this is a good plan from it comes from when it comes to military strategy. However, 
there is something they did not take into consideration. There's no water. Now, it could be they expected one particular river, which commentary writers, even through the 19th century, said was really the logical place to find water in that area and might even be available all year round. But for whatever reason, there was a drought or something like that, and there was no water. They marched for seven days. Can you imagine? Marching for seven days with all your horses, all your supplies, all your soldiers, and there's no water. Things are desperate. This plan is falling apart quickly. And Jehoram's reaction is this. Alas, the Lord has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. Suddenly, Jehoram believes in the sovereignty of God. That this was God's plan all along to give these three kings, Jehoram, Jehoshaphat, and the king of Edom, who has joined them, to give them into the hands of Moab in defeat. He says, this means it's been God's plan all along. Now, on the one hand, you wonder, why then had he not consulted God before he went on this mission? On the other hand, you might wonder, why is it God's fault that his planning went awry? Maybe he didn't want to take blame. Maybe he wanted to place it on God. So what does he do? He cries out, says it's God's fault. It's his plan. That's why we're here. That's why we're in this desperate condition. But here's Jehoshaphat that's with him. Remember, Jehoshaphat, for his faults, particularly his fault of associating and committing as an ally to first Ahab and then Ahaziah and now Jehoram, all wicked people, all those who were uh, contrary to the people of God, here he is, he says, Is there no prophet of the Lord here through whom we may inquire of the Lord? In other words... God is still with me. God is still the one we can turn to in times of trouble. And by God's grace, there is a servant of the king of Israel who says, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, is here, who is the servant of Elisha, or, or was the servant of Elijah. In other words, this idea of pouring water on the hands of Elijah, he was the servant. They hadn't recognized yet that he was the one who had been given the office of prophet in those days. The king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom then all march together and Jehoram tags along with Jehoshaphat to inquire of the Lord through Elisha. Now what do we make of all this? We're told, how many times have I heard there are no atheists in foxholes? They're in a pretty bad foxhole. They're in a bad situation. There's no water. They have an entire army that's with them. If they don't find water, they're going to start losing horses. They're going to start losing men. Some of them may die in the desert. I think there are also not only no atheists, as some would say, but there's a lot of Jehorims. There are those who would say, we're in this situation because God put us there. Defeat is imminent. Things are dire. And I think it's been God's plan all along for this to take place. You see, what they're interested in, if you're an atheist in a foxhole crying out to God, you may not be interested in God, but you're desperately interested in escape, in escaping trouble. But are you really interested in that moment for the Lord's discipleship to change and transform you? 
we're told by Ralph Davis, who wrote a commentary on this passage, that those in those situations are not interested in the Lord of heaven and earth to escape trouble. They are interested in him to escape trouble, but not for discipleship. They're interested in him for a word for the moment, but not to submit to it. They want God's rescue and God's provision, but they don't necessarily want his lordship and his power over all things. This is Jehoram. At that moment, he recognizes the sovereignty of God. He says, in the absence of being accused of the one whose poor planning led to this condition, he says, it's all God's fault. And so when they approach Elisha, the prophet of God, here is Elisha's response. What have I to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father and to the prophets of your mother. Now, this is sarcastic advice, isn't it? Elisha doesn't really want Jehoram to go to the prophets of Baal and the prophets of the Ashtoreths and all the others. He doesn't really want him to go and do that, but he's reminding him, this is your heritage. You are treating God as if he is one of a polytheistic nature or pantheon of gods. You think that because of this situation, you can claim it's God's fault because you eliminated the worship of Baal. And therefore, you think you can come to the prophet of God in order to either blame him or to gain counsel. And when he says this, of course, the king of Israel said to him, no. And he repeats to him, this blame laid at the feet of the Lord. He says, the Lord who has called these three kings to give him into the hand of Moab. Now, who has called Jehoram to be a prophet of God? Who has given him the insight and wisdom to predict what is going to happen in the future? Who has given him the discernment to know why and how this is the purpose of God for his people to die in the desert at the hand of the Moabites? And here Elisha reminds him, As the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, were it not that I have regard for Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would neither look at you nor see you. He is requited by Elisha for his faulty beliefs. Elisha is rejecting his theory of why he's there in that situation. Elisha is also reminding him that because he is one who is committed to the evil of the sin of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and because he is committed to this pagan worship and idolatry, he has no standing before God. In fact, we can say, according to this passage, that apart from the presence of Jehoshaphat, he is beyond the help of the word of God because he has no association with it. What a terrible place to be. I was interested to hear of someone recently, and I've heard these before, as someone who claims to believe God's sovereignty, but never goes to worship God. Someone who claims to believe God's sovereignty, but uses that as an excuse to continue their sinful lifestyle. You see, these are the theists of yesterday. Those who would say, I believe there's a sovereign God in control of all things. He wound up the universe and he let everything go, but we don't really have anything to do with him after that. They might
might be the carnal Christians of today, those who were referenced there in chapter 18 of our Westminster Confession, those who thought that they had belief in God, but they didn't truly believe in him, so they're grasping for the idea that they're saved, and yet they don't want to give up their sinful lifestyle. They don't want to truly commit to the Lord. This is Jehoram. He recognizes God is sovereign. You know, the scriptures tell us the demons recognize a lot of things about God, too. But they're not saved. Don't blame him, that is God, for the consequences of your sin or your own foolishness. This is what Jehoram is doing. And yet he has no standing before God because he has not trusted in him, nor does he follow him. What does this tell us, this story thus far? We'll look at the rest of it later, what God says to Elisha and what the deliverance of the people of Israel is like from Moab. It tells us that God's word is for all times, on all occasions, in all places. It's not just for times of trouble, for the hocus-pocus of magical deliverance. It's not just so that in, when times get difficult, we can say, well, God, that was your plan all along. I have no responsibility here. It's not to be able to say to God, you know, I really worship somebody else, but when, when the rubber hits the road, I'll turn to you. It's none of those things. It reminds us that God wants us to totally abandon our life of depravity and sin, our idols and the things that we love in this world that are opposed to God. We must abandon them wholly and completely, turning to the Lord for grace and forgiveness, and then seeking to follow him with that same abandon. Now, Jehoshaphat is called a good king in Judah. You can read about him, particularly in 2 Kings 18 through 22. And in that section of scripture, we're reminded again and again of the goodness of Jehoshaphat because the Chronicles is always portraying the positive things of the kings of Judah. And yet, even in that positive nature, he is warned, he is threatened, that when he is associated with the evil of Ahab's family, there are consequences. We must be careful. God desires for us faithfulness, commitment, and total abandon to the Lord Jesus Christ. Apart from that, we have no standing before God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. As difficult as it is, though we desire that we could go back and change the mind and heart of Jehoram, we can't. Though we wish we could go back and so show Jehoshaphat that he was silly and foolish for once again submitting to the family of Ahab. Yet, Lord, by your glory and grace, it's your word that shall stand. It's your word that convicts. It's your word that shall reveal to us your character, your love for your people, and your desire for us to be committed to you. Lord, help us in those ways to be committed to you totally with abandon. We pray in Jesus' name.